Darian? Yes, Toby. I think I'm in love. Oh, do tell. But there's a problem. She's a chatbot. <laughs> this sounded uh, much more dramatic uh, in my head. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna. I'm just gonna. I'm in love with chatbots. Uh, not in a not in a weird way, uh, but well, in an awesome way. I don't know if there's any other way to be in love with chatbots except for in a weird way. <laughs> well, this is what I'd say. This is what I would say. Um, there are two things that that I dislike about interfacing with uh, telephone services. One is is I hate phone trees. I deeply hate them. And entering my social security number and birthday and member ID and et cetera, et cetera, on a touchscreen number pad on a phone, um, it's humiliating. <laughs> I... I don't like it. it. It's long. I, I rarely find the thing I want on a phone tree. And then even when I zero out, they tend to uh, throw me between departments. Right. Um, and I also feel sorry for people on the other line when I'm getting cold called or when I'm talking to people trying to help me. I, I feel like that's a degrading form of labor. And I think that I imagine talking to anybody who's worked in a call center for any period of time, they would agree with you. Uh, with me that uh that this is not this is not a joyous job this is this is is something that people would would go to lengths to avoid right and, so, and i so feel chat, like chatbots yeah, yeah chatbots ameliorate both of these phenomena in really meaningful ways and i've had good experiences in the last several months of speaking to what i i am fairly positive are artificially intelligent chatbots that can answer my queries that are more sophisticated than questions I can just Google search, but uh, I don't need a human being for them. Mm. This is Darian Bates. This is Toby Wilson Bates. And this is The Stories We Tell Our Robots, the podcast where we talk about how we make our technology and how our technology makes us. All right. Well, if, if, I assume this is our starting point here. I mean, I, if you're convinced, we can just end here. <laughs> no. All right. You're in love with chatbots. What do we do with that? Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right, then. Well, see you, see you at Christmas. Well, given the fact that we are going to do a podcast today, let me see if I can figure out... Uh, kind of what to do with this strange love affair you have. Yeah, I um, mean, do you want to tell me about my new love? Yeah, sure. Well, let me give you a few characteristics of your new love. I think you really can't make any long-term commitments until you understand kind of that you're, you're, you know, like they say that uh, if you want to know what your wife is going to be like in uh, in, in 30 years, look at her mom. Um, I, I don't know if I'm treading into any kind of yeah, I was like, <laughs> this is like, this is a strange beginning. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was gonna say, if you want to know what a what being in love with a chatbot is like, first understand where the chatbot's coming from. Ah, oh, all right, the mom bot. Right? Yeah, you like what I did there? 
Uh, maybe, yep. a little, maybe a little context here, as I want to do. Um, so the, the, the chat bot is really kind of the latest iteration of really what I, would, what I would call kind of automated customer service. Many people think of um, kind of the beginning of this, this automated customer service as kind of the, the starting off and kind of the interactive voice response systems or the very, the thing, even the systems that predate, predated that in kind of the 1980s is really where you started that happening. But I would like to actually propose that the first real kind of telecommunications automated system was actually just the move from um, an operator kind of in the you know the first operators really in the late 1900s in the late 19th century the, the late 1800s um, who used to do the switchboard operators and just even being able to dial your own phone number being able to manage that system without needing a manual person to support you is where this really all began right because that's what we're talking about here is is how can you manage a system and the the resources of that system. How can you get the resources out of the system? And the term you'll hear now being thrown around is kind of knowledge management. That's that's often what you start hearing when people start talking about trying to figure out how to solve this problem to help people get the information that they need as quickly as possible and access the system in as efficiently as efficiently as possible. That's kind of the knowledge management is sort of that that broader category. And so if you think about it starting, you know, people used the minute you kind of had telecommunications, you started having systems for people to to handle them, to work through them. So then and that was kind of you started with the human operator. Eventually, you transitioned to people kind of a self-serve system model for te uh, telephones. And then in kind of the 70s, early 80s, you started having very rudimentary what you, what you termed as phone trees. Um, the ability to kind of with your touch tone phone starting to manage kind of your way through these systems without having a human operator. And eventually that again, it turned into uh, interactive voice response um, uh, or IVR as it's called. Um, and that's and it started to kind of rise in the 70s, but the technology wasn't kind of advanced enough and most people weren't using it until like the 1980s and then the 1990s where you're starting to be able to not just touch tone your way through a system, but actually speak to the system, right? Say, you know, someone's like, you know, give me your credit card. And you're like, you know, you read out the numbers or you say your name. It's like, did you mean, right? Like all that kind of stuff, which is just endlessly frustrating, I think, for a lot of people. Yeah, um, and it, it seems kind of ubiquitous now that there's sort of like uh, chat windows that offer you certain forms of support. I mean, I, although I'm aware that sometimes those chat windows are actually connected to people uh, and not right. bots. Right, and there is a there's almost a hierarchy of who it's who it's connected to. There's your you you first have bots if it can be handled that way, and then you have like your outsourced customer service that can be handled that way, and finally you have like your your kind of in-house headquarters customer service, which is frequently domestically located versus the outsource is frequently located in an area where labor is maybe less uh, expensive. And each of those area, each of those kind of tiers are based upon the the understanding of how complex of an issue you're trying to handle. And so that's you know that's where we're now getting to the point where we're trying to get people out of that telephonic support system and into things like chat, um, into things there. You're even seeing it done with SMS on a couple occasions, um, text messaging and things like that. Um, and we keep trying to get more advanced in terms of how much we can do without you ever having to talk to a person, right? And I think yeah. 
you know, your your frustration with it, with the kind of the more, you know, the, the, the telephonics um, version of this and your your interest in the chat version of this just puts you kind of on a on a continuum of where where this whole knowledge management world is going and and you found your version of your comfort with it. Um, but in, in many ways, that's it's kind of a, a system that is only getting is only going to get more and more advanced. Right. There, there's there are people working hard every day to kind of create an AI version of this for the future where they're starting to to use kind of real, um, you know, real language mining, real machine learning, things like that to be able to be even more responsive and even more human like in their ability to respond to you without you ever having to talk to um, an actual person. So, right. And I, and I want to be clear, I, I do really like actual people. I'm married to an actual person. Uh, <laughs> now. Yes. Yeah. 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 Let's, let's pump the brakes here on my personophobia. Um, <laughs> I just feel like there, there are certain jobs that are, are really degrading. Um, mm -hmm. and, and part of my thinking about this uh, is inspired by this Oscar Wilde essay, The Soul of Man Under Socialism. Okay. Um, and uh, I, I know this is, a, this is a slight tangent, but I, I actually think it's interesting because it, for me, it, it gets at some of the motivation for why even have technological progress. Um, hmm. And so uh, I'm going to read a little bit of this quote, and I'm, I deeply apologize if this is too long of a quote. Um, no, no I, I go on for hours at a time about yeah, that. Yeah, I want to say, <laughs> you're like, let me explain golden plows to you again. Right. <laughs> um, so uh, he's talking about socialism here, and he's using a certain kind of utopian, kind of Hegelian reasoning behind uh, how he's thinking about this, which is all to say uh, a sort of teleological uh, description of how society should work. We should be working towards a better thing from a right. thing that's okay, right? A muddled thing to a better thing kind of reverse entropy. Um, so he, he says, uh, he's talking about the state. He says, the state is supposed to be governing. The state is to be a voluntary association that will organize labor and be the manufacturer and distributor of necessary commodities. The state is to make what is useful. The individual is to make what is beautiful. And as I've mentioned the word labor, I cannot help saying that a great deal of nonsense is being written and talk nowadays about the dignity of manual labor. There's nothing necessarily dignified about manual labor at all. And most of it is absolutely degrading. It is mentally and morally injurious to man to do anything in which he does not find pleasure. And many forms of labor are quite less activities and should be regarded as such. To sweep a slushy crossing for eight hours on a day when the east wind is blowing is a disgusting occupation. To sweep it with mental, moral, or physical dignity seems to me to be impossible. Uh, to sweep it with joy would be appalling. Man is made for something better than disturbing dirt. Uh, all work of that kind should be done by a machine. And mm -hmm. so I, I think this is such an interesting moment in Wilde because then he goes on to talk about automata, this idea that more and more advanced machinery should be doing these degrading tasks while individuals uh, sort of reap the benefits of the relief of that labor. And this is, this is how I feel about this, um, that, that there is almost nothing but benefit in in adding sort of a machine labor into this particular realm right well let, let me let me play devil's advocate here actually no i'm going to be my own advocate here um yeah i'll fight on my own account no um 
because the way what he just described, what Oscar Wilde just described in terms of manual labor and what you are now determining determining is degrading labor are two fundamentally different things. I mean, can we acknowledge that sweeping a uh, as, uh, what does he describe it? An east, an east, uh, east end street or something? I, 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 I'm not yeah. If, if I had to choose between sweeping a street and spending 12 hours calling people about their cable package, I would sweep the street. <laughs> well, see, you say that until you're actually in like a London winter sweeping the street. So, so let, let me, let me, let, let's start off by, by really kind of identifying, I mean, I, what I'm hearing Oscar Wilde say is that, you know, humans shouldn't be put to this kind of manual drudgery. Um, it's, it's physically punishing. It's, um, it's, it's maybe mentally punishing, psychologically punishing, whatever. Um, and, and I find it very interesting that you put um, chat, you know, customer service and, you know, human customer service into that category, because I actually, I actually feel like that's going to be at the heart of why, of my argument of, of, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm tipping my hand a little bit about how I feel about customer service systems and customer service in general, but it kind of at the heart of my argument about why um, I don't love the chatbot, why um, I feel like, the, you know, I, I hesitate to think kind of corporate America, it's such, that's creating like this, this monolithic community why I feel like the the rush to try to create better and better chatbots isn't maybe a isn't maybe time well spent. That there are be, there are better things to do in that in than to kind of pursue that particular line of efficiency. Um, and I think it comes down to one of the things that you're saying about that Oscar Wilde is actually speaking to there. Um, and he's so he's identified manual labor and this kind of drudgery, and you've equated that kind of drudgery to. Um, an interactive human, kind of interactive human experiences through call centers. Yeah, but I, I'd say specifically sort of prescripted, mindless, repetitive, interactive human experience. I mean, it's not like these people are, are you know, doing improv with you. Right, right. No, I mean, it's a fair point. Although, although I, I would like to point out that I, you're talking about two different things with the chatbot. You know, you're talking about and I, I want to be really clear, I think even before we went into this, you know, I was talking about there's really defining the chatbot and the idea of knowledge management systems, which is the ability for you to, if you have a question, to kind of get that answered as efficiently as possible, um, as being distinct from sales systems and hmm. being distinct from also from virtual assistants like Siri, right? Oh, I that's think interesting. That's interesting. So it's like... Uh... I don't know, like the difference between a, a computer program that competes in the game of Go versus a computer program that competes in like chess or something. Right. I mean, I think Siri, right, exactly. I would say knowledge management systems, which is what chatbots really kind of function within, the helping you navigate the information and knowledge that, that a system has within it. And, you know, a, a commercial system, a company has this information, you need to extract that information because you need to finish a transaction with that company. It's very different than what I would say Siri's doing. She has, she, Siri may also have a, a kind of fixed environment of knowledge, but she is trying to do a much more kind of open-ended exploration of it with you, which is much more of a, 
that idea that you're kind of moving into all these possible iterations of what you're looking for versus a knowledge management system that has such a closed system in terms of you have a finite number of ways in which you could even be attempting to interact with this system to accomplish a set of tasks that are associated with whatever the business is. Um, right. But it's also not a sales system. So I, you've, on a couple of occasions, you've conflated, oh, it'd be terrible to sit in a call center making kind of cold calls to people. Um, and I'm, I'm sure it is. I'm mean, sure that's, that's fairly uncomfortable. And I have a number of uh, friends who started off in their, you know, in, they work in finance and they started off kind of dialing for dollars. Um, and it is not only mind numbing, it is, it is, it breaks you in a certain way. Um, and that's, I, I, I'm just looking to kind of maybe separate these conversations because, because you're talking about a chatbot. And, and to be clear, you're, you're about to go to bat for the mind numbing breaks you in a certain way profession? No, no, I'm going to, I'm going to bat for, I, I think the idea of kind of cold calling rules and kind of phone centers are are difficult in their own right. It's not even entirely clear that they're worth it, but mm -hmm. they are they're not what I think of when I think of what chatbots are for. Chatbots aren't there to sell you, they're there to help you, right? Right. Right. Okay. So, I get the distinction. Right. So if we're talking about the love of your life, the chatbot, and <laughs> and I I think this, to me, I really look at what is that chatbot, and if we're going to really think about the evolution of this of this kind of knowledge management system into these increasingly human-like systems that can help you solve this problem that you have at hand with minimal friction, with minimal human interaction, with minimal um, minimal challenges and at the same time with minimal degradation of the human experience on the end on the other side of things nobody has to do that job anymore right and so so your 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 love of the chatbot if i'm understanding it correctly is both because it it minimizes the degrading experience of people who have to be on the company side and it also increases your pleasure in the experience because you think it's a fairly frictionless experience on your end and maybe you don't want to talk to people when you're just trying to solve a quick question and that little chat right there is 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 your preferred way of solving the issue is that so that sum it up am i i'm not putting words in your mouth with that am i yeah no i i, I like that i i think that that speaks uh, pretty directly to uh uh what i find enjoyable about the experience okay so here's my so let me let me first kind of point out this this question of whether that is a degrading human experience or not to be on that side of on the customer service side. Um, so I did a quick I did a quick search on the Bureau of Labor Statistics, um, and customer service jobs in total account for about one percent of total U.S. employment. There's about two million people in the country who oh, work wow. in kind of these customer service jobs, customer hmm. service representative jobs. Um, and they make they make on average about fifteen plus dollars an hour um, for for kind of an annual salary of some or an annual income of somewhere in the thirty five thirty six thousand dollar a year range. Um, and the, most of these jobs don't require a high school degree. I mean, only have a high school degree um, requirement. They don't require a um, a college degree. And um, they are predominantly done. They're predominantly done by women. Um, oh, interesting. So, 
in the world, so even before we go into whether this is whether the technology itself is good, this question of whether is it worthwhile, like is it a bad thing to replace these jobs? Are these jobs jobs that should be replaced? Are, is, are these is this a degrading is this degrading work? Is it would people choose to be doing something else? Um, and so my my one argument is actually while this this does make up a huge sector of the U.S. population. They're relatively good jobs, um, based upon what the what the um, education level of the people who are working them are. And and again, if you're if you're thinking of your alternatives are working in food service, um, working in um, you know kind of uh, of kind of domestic services, things like that. They are they are comparatively speaking fairly easy on people's bodies and one would even think maybe on their psyches, even if they are dealing with the occasional high-rate customer. Yeah. So yeah. let me start by putting that in context and saying that I don't know that I would say we should just lose those jobs automatically. Um, yeah, and, yeah. and it's worth saying, I, I, just to point out the, the end of this uh, sort of little tangent that it, that Oscar, Oscar Wilde, not Oscar Wilde, <laughs> man of mystery yeah. um, after going through all this stuff about you know kind of uh machines and civilization he goes uh is this utopian a map of the world that does not include utopia is not even worth glancing at for it leaves out the one country at which humanity is always landing and when mm -hmm. humanity lands there it looks out and seeing a better country sets sail progress is the realization of utopias plural. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, this is all to say, I, my, my end game is not let's, let's throw 2 million people out of work. Um, I, don't, I don't mean it in that way. And, and I, I'm aware that this is, this is like a, an argument across automation writ large in right. general. Right. And I love that you say that because here's, here's my second point, which I think is really interesting, which is we are in this this process and, and we're now in this kind of very anxious making period where nobody knows which of their jobs are going to be automated. And there's this, this is maybe a totally inappropriate way, but you know, if we talk long enough, you always end up on the internet, you talk about Hitler eventually. Um, yeah. There's, there's something. It's called Godwin's law. Did you know that? Yes. Yes. I remember that. I, uh, <laughs> there was that whole thing around Charlottesville where Godwin, Godwin himself um, kind of chimed in at some point and said, no, in this case, we're allowed to talk about Hitler, given the fact that it was a... Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'll allow it. Yes, exactly. It doesn't invalidate your point if somebody is, in fact, uh, marching in the streets in, in service of National Socialism. But the, um, no, but the, you know, th this idea, kind of that famous... Um, First they came for whatever, and I, I can't do the quote or whatever, but you know, first they came for this and then they came for this and it, I, I wasn't worried because it wasn't me kind of thing. And yeah. I think it's really interesting kind of the hyperventilation you're starting to hear from white collar, from people who are working white collar jobs about the idea that their jobs are starting to be automated. It's like, well, as long as we were automating all this um, kind of blue collar labor, we were fine with that. You know, automate some, some car plants, like we're great with that see white collar jobs starting to be automated you're suddenly starting to people are suddenly starting to wonder where does it end you know where do where do we keep our jobs and what i think is very interesting in this uh, in this conversation about chatbots and really 
kind of automated customer service in general is in all the things that can be automated, there are a lot of white collar jobs. I think the, the one that I think is really interesting right now is legal discovery, right? Legal discovery, where you, you said just teams of lawyers, teams of young, of junior associate lawyers would just go through massive amounts of documents. And that was the thing that you threw your junior lawyers at, at the beginning of everything. And now more and more law firms actually aren't hiring junior associates because they don't need that. They have all these algorithmic discovery tools now that are doing that work. And so you're, you're seeing lawyers losing jobs. You're seeing kind of this, this, this lower level um, kind of menial, but still what has previously thought being sort of, you know, something that machines can't do now being done by machines and, and people, People are trying to get very anxious about that, but the work that actually I'm feeling, I feel pretty convinced can't be automated for a long time in any satisfactory way actually is the human interactions. That going through mass amounts of documents is not actually what humans are best at, but right. the nuanced human interaction to make people feel better and to solve problems is, is maybe the only thing that we'll still be good at or better at than robots 50 years from now. Right. These are, these are often called soft skills, right? Right. Right. Exactly. And so I think it's, it's, it's really interesting. I looked at a banking study that had been done um, a couple of years ago that um, went in, that was looking at how satisfied people are with various um, customer service channels. And banks, banks have a reputation for being kind of behind the curve in a lot of technology ways. It's actually kind of unfair to banks. Banks, um, for better or for worse, actually are, are, have been, kind of at the forefront of a lot of automation and a lot of um, kind of a, a technology advancements. If you think about when yeah, the ATM showed up. Thanks, everyone. What's that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thanks, everyone. Back off. Um, yeah, yeah, come on. These poor guys, I mean, rich guys, but poor, <laughs> these poor guys. Exactly. Um, but actually, there was a banking study that, that showed that um, IVR and chat are the two largest areas of customer dissatisfaction in any of the customer engagement channels that banks you know have set up branch interactions are still so much more satisfying um custom you know a live customer service representative and you know it's not uncommon for you to hear like i actually got to speak to a real person and the even the idea that somebody is like saying like one of their positive aspects of working with x or y or z company is i got to speak to a real person um, yeah. as, as a real kind of indicator that the company still cares. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, we have to go. And um, in terms of making these kinds of automated customer service interactions, like legitimately satisfying. And even as we really, you know, a, a find and replace um, or an advanced kind of find and replace document search thing. Nobody ever, that doesn't really affect people's belief that their lawyer is doing a good job or not because they've decided to use a software instead of a junior associate. Um, I'm kind of holding those up as two different white collar jobs, one of both of which can be replaced, but one of which can be replaced fairly easily, but it's getting, it's replacing lawyers. And the other is replacing, you know, high school graduates who don't have kind of these advanced degrees. And we're really working hard to replace those, those, those kind of frontline human skills, hmm. you know, and, and that, that seems like that's actually one of the better things that humans are, that's one that humans are really good at. 
Um, so and this maybe has more to do with uh, a kind of weak labor negotiating position than it actually has to do with logic. Precisely. And I actually think there's this idea of social capital. Like roles have different levels of social capital. And we've, we've given certain positions in society kind of high level um, value, right? Or high value roles. And we've given other positions low value roles. And, mm-hmm. and, we're, and we often seek to, you know, automate low value roles and elevate high value roles, right? Yep, that makes sense. Right. Um, but I would argue that the customer service representative is a is a low value role from a perception standpoint, but is a it is it is a role that should not and cannot be automated without significant damage being done to the institute that attempt, the institution that attempts to do that. Um, hmm. And and I think one of the questions that I have for you is why is this a low value role? Like why, from your perspective, from the narratives that you've read. I mean, I have some theories myself, but why do we why do we give so little social capital to the front lines of kind of customer service and customer engagement when it's often the only person that many customers are actually speaking to, the only kind of real person, right? Nobody speaks to the, very few customers that are speaking to the CEO, but every customer at some point speaks to a customer service representative. Yeah. Wow. Ah, poof. That's uh, there's a lot there, and, and I and I. I feel like this is one of those rabbit holes that you could end up sort of disappearing down pretty far because it has to do with sort of, I think, kind of power, sex, communication, service, right? Like you could, you can say a bunch of terms that kind of congregate around that question about Mm -hmm. why do we elevate something and degrade something else. Um, Maybe one sort of stab at it I'd give and, and this is partially to stick with Oscar Wilde because this is where he one of the places he would have entered into this discussion um, and, I, and I think it's a he's ta- he talks about machines he talks about machines doing human labor he talks about automata um, but of course he's not talking about robots um, robots as a term wasn't around yet in the 19th century. It doesn't show up until 1921 with Carol Capek's Rossum's Universal Robots, mm-hmm. um, which sort of takes this in the direction that we're more familiar with now of like the, the sort of dangerous humanoid robot uh, always on the cusp of consciousness or something like that. What, what Oscar Wilde would have been talking about is two different things. Uh, one, he would have been talking about industrialization, factory robotics, the kind of stuff that shows, shows up in Marx's Capital and that kind of thing. But two, uh, Wilde was a, a, a wildly <laughs> successful classicist. Um, so he would be talking about Greek robots. Um, two that jump immediately to mind are, are Talos, who was a, a sort of a soldier robot, and then uh, Galatea. And so Galatea is from this mythology of, of Asis, Achis, and Galatea. It shows up famously in the Metamorphosis. Uh, it enters into the sort of modern lexicon more through Jean-Jacques Rousseau's uh, scene lyric of 1762 called Pygmalion. Um, so the, the story goes and, and, and how Rousseau adjusts it a little bit. But it, essentially this idea of you create a female automata named Galatea, a uh, gynoid, a female robot. 
Uh, and then you then it learns speech. In the original mythology, Achis falls in love with her, and uh, Aphrodite sort of grants his wish by by giving her life uh, so that he can kind of you know make love to her and everything. But it, it kind of comes to us through the genealogy of sort of my fair lady. This mm -hmm. idea that teaching a, a mechanical female speech becomes uh, a way to understand language and service. And, and you'll notice from the sort of My Fair Lady tradition that the, la the lady is always lower class. Uh, right. She's always sort of seen as this kind of industrial refuse to be reused and turned into a, a cipher for social language and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, which is to say, uh, I thought it was such a fascinating point that you made earlier about how many of these call center jobs are actually being done by women. And, it, and it's worth saying, telephone operator was also a, a very feminized profession. Well, um, and what oh, sorry, go ahead. there about the telephone operator is that it didn't start as women. Um, hmm. and, and, and it quickly became the, the first telephone operator was the first female telephone operator was Emma Nutt. She became the first female telephone operator in September of 1878 when she started working for the, the Boston Telephone Dispatch Company. And then it created this huge wave of women replacing men in the sector. Um, women were generally, on the one hand, more courteous, were they were kind of better at the role. Um, but also because they could also be paid so much less. Yep. They were paid from one half to one quarter of a man's salary. And it's like, it's like how this whole role was being defined as kind of customer service. You both were, the women tended to both be better, but they also tended to be cheaper. And so you ended up in this place where we really degraded the value of kind of these, these female interactions at this early stage. Yeah, and we don't have to go into this at all, but uh, the, the sort of telos of this is like Siri and Alexa and Cortana, mm -hmm. right? These like mm -hmm. kind of pocket female females that you carry around to serve you. So uh, just to, to loop this back to your original question about how I think this dynamic works, I, I, I think this the underlying narrative of female service, of, of female automata, of the female language robot, um, has been around, you know, as long as we think about the sort of parameters of, of modern civilization as descended from kind of Greek mythology has been around, um, mm. which is maybe maybe not the most useful answer, um, but uh, maybe can kick us towards our Im important understanding of whether this is apocalypse or utopia. I think we we've kind of we've kind of talked around the subject a little bit in terms of you know whether this thing is you, you kind of come in as, as with this this idea that you have a, a great kind of a great and abiding affection for for this uh, chatbots, but I would I if you know if you allow me I would kind of extend that you you find the idea of of automated customer service to be appealing and the only thing that maybe limits your affection for it is the degree to which it's not done as effectively as it could be right like is that fair like you're if you 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 would be for more and more advanced levels of automated customer service 
Yeah, and I might I might throw in one caveat there <laughs> to finish reading the the full uh, quote from Oscar Wilde. This is this is a point he makes, and I, and I, I want to stress this because I don't want to come across as like a monster. Um, <laughs> he says, up to the present, man has been to a certain extent the slave of machinery, and there is something tragic in the fact that as soon as man had invented a machine to do his work, he began to starve. This, however, is, of course, the result of our property system and our system of competition. One man owns a machine which does the work of 500 men. 500 men are, in consequence, thrown out of employment and, having no work to do, become hungry and take to thieving. Uh, which is, I mean, I don't know if that's true, but uh, the, guy, <laughs> the guy's family survived the Irish. The guy's family survived the Irish potato famine, so right. maybe he knows something. Um, the one man secures the pr produce of the machine and keeps it and has 500 times as much as he should have and probably, which is of much more importance, a great deal more than he really wants. Were the machine right. the property of all, everyone would benefit by it. So this is all to say, um, part of this particular model I'm talking about is not me saying let's throw all these people out of work, but, but rather what work is might really productively be questioned by looking at this difficulty. Um, right, right. And, I, and, and I, I do believe I really should, you know, we can all give you the benefit of the doubt in this, that you're not looking to throw people out of the work. You're, you're really saying, you know, in a world where you could control all these other factors of what happens to people when, if they do lose their work, they, um, you know, if, you know if, the, if, the, if the productivity that was gained from that could be equally distributed, you would choose to do it. Right. Like we're, you're not you're not looking to throw people out. You're just saying that you if all, all else being equal, you think that this would, this is a great way of, of increasing productivity and overall human happiness um, if people did the right thing by it. Right. Yes. Yep. And, okay. I, and I think and I, and I, and I want to engage in our apocalypse utopia question on that point, which is even if it was done as effectively and as fairly as possible, where people weren't even hurt in this process, like in terms of being thought out, if, we, if people were, if people took this extra time and did something um, that you might categorize as, as a more elevated pursuit, um, I would still give it a, I would give it a two on the utopia scale. I will, I will say that um, I think following the logical extreme of automating more and more of our customer service interactions, creating more and more kind of uh, customer service automatons, whatever that format is, whether it's chat, whether it's phone, whether it's in-person robots who greet you at the door. I will say that is a, um, I think that is a slippery slope towards a significant um, kind of long-term problem and potentially could be um, and not to sound too dramatic, oh yes, to, to sound completely too dramatic, could be borderline apocalyptic. So hmm. here's, here's my it's argument. Really, it's really interesting to think about, like, if in capitalism, one of the sort of essential forms of kind of empathy and interaction that people perform is, like, customer service. Right. <laughs> and, yeah, all right. I, I think it's really important. So here's, and my reason for it is, and I, and I, I'm citing, actually I'm citing, I'm not citing because I couldn't find it. Um, but actually I've, there is a, um, there was a, there was a study that was done. And I, I read this, I think it was a New Yorker piece and I was trying to track it down and I didn't have any luck with it, but it was talking about 
Uniqlo, the Jap Japanese clothing company, had recently opened a, a, um, a New York store. And one of the things that U Uniqlo is like, they're actually, they're a little fascist, frankly, about the way that they train their staff. But their mm -hmm. staff is also first line engagement with everybody. And they are, they are intense in how they engage people. And they are the they are the kind of the spirit of the company that's that's engaging with people on a daily basis and they they both kind of bring the energy bring this human energy to people but they also bring the feedback back right they are they are these kind of human human feelers about a company and and i and what they found was actually uniqlo the more people it had they had like the most people per square feet of store, something like that, the more profitable the location was, not just the more revenue it made. It wasn't a, it was a bottom line benefit, the more profitable overall that was per square foot or whatever, which meant that it was like, we think of customer service as we try to automate it because we want to eliminate that cost because we think of that there's a lot of people on the front line. If you think about a company as kind of a pyramid, there's one CEO and there's, there's thousands of customer service reps. Um, but those those people on the front line, hiring more of, you know, hiring less of them can actually reduce profits. Um, again, I, there's been studies on this and sometimes they, they don't always show that. Um, but that frontline interaction is a really vital source of customer feedback and company um, empathy and company response. And if you think about a company as being a kind of a, a an ecosystem, right? A company a company isn't a monolithic kind of feeler, right? A company is kind of this ecosystem of people who interact with other people who interact with other people. Um, when people are unhappy in it, it kind of filters around. Like imagine you're around your you around your peers, and and when you don't have when when people when your call center starts being very unhappy, it can create a toxic environment, and that's a good thing, right? When your customer service reps are feeling awful because the overall company has a bad is 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 frankly treating people badly, is operating in in unethical ways, or is operating in in ways that are exploitative, like that starts to kind of come through into the you know, like your your frontline troops are the ones that feel it the most. And while they are often frequently disempowered, they are also still a human part of your culture. And if you can numb your numb your front line by turning them into robots, we've kind of reached that final point where you really don't have kind of personal consequences to to behaving badly as an institution. And assuming that you can get away with it from a profit and loss perspective, you're not the 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 impact of your decisions is not being felt um, and not being understood at a personal level, and I I think that's problematic. I think companies won't like from a company. I think it's bad for business because I think companies don't become as empathetic and responsive, even if they say they want to. Even if they set up data feelers to try to to try to replace what the, the yeah. call center might have been doing before, but also I think it's bad for business i think i think humans when our businesses become less and less human i think that's bad for everybody 
And Man, I, I feel like uh, like you just had like a Jerry Maguire moment. So that's that, that's my you know I didn't use a lot of data there to back up that particular viewpoint, but I you know as someone who has worked in business for a long time and who 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 is very care who one of my real emphases while working kind of with and inside organizations has always been to figure out how to make sure those organizations are open to kind of empathetic relationships internally and externally with, with customers, with um, partners, and also with employees. And I'm very suspicious of, a, of an organization that doesn't, that, that tries to numb that part of itself. I think a much better example, and I, and I was another, another case study I was trying to track down, I read, an, I read about an organization that they, they, they totally changed the company culture and really kind of found a lot of success in turning their call center and turning their, their customer service reps into the organization's heroes. They basically changed the social capital that those people enjoyed within the company. And by doing so, they, they really upped customer satisfaction. They turned the company on its head a bit and they really changed kind of how everything was happening at the company, how product decisions were made, how, how organizational um, change was done. And the, the frontline um, service people were the people who were now kind of made the organizational heroes and the rainmakers. You know, often you hear that salespeople are made the rainmakers. They made their, their service reps, their rainmakers. And it really transformed just how the business operated in general. And I think that's a much, I think that's a much stronger way of going about this than to kind of do what I think is very conventional um, kind of push towards efficiency, which is happening really by by trying to automate some of these roles, and instead saying, "Look, this is our most human part of our business: people that people talk to when they call in with an issue." That's 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 where I stand. Um, with so where are you? Metaphorical mic. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I literally dropped the mic. No. Um. So 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 where are you? Where are you on um, apocalypse or utopia? Um, that was uh, that was like a second context section. That was, uh, <laughs> that was... all right. Well, uh, I I think I'll I'll take the uh, the the cowardly academic way out and uh, pretend that my initial argument wasn't uh, was about a much smaller subset of the thing that ended up being talked about. <laughs> um, isolate this. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> My hypothesis is only under true in 90% of circumstances. <laughs> but the other 10%, it's 100% true. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I get it. I was going to go, I was going to go pretty high on this. I was with, I was with Oscar Wilde, you know, on his, on his mind ship sailing towards utopia. Um, and I'll take this down to a six. I think, uh, and I, I'll do that by, by dropping, dropping out customer service uh, and sales and the sort of empathetic part of the the chatbot uh you know mechanism and just thinking more about maybe kind of advanced search and information set chatbots as a thing that i think are are good um so uh i i think that that's moving in a, in a good direction something that is is more sort of niche and more specific and more curated than a Google search um, because it happens within a particular company's purview uh, and they're aware of, of 
a broad range, even possibly several thousand different data set range of the kinds of questions people might ask, like the one I had the other day was simply, I, I wanted to get something from an AT&T vendor and I wasn't sure if the vendor that was located inside of a grocery store would carry the object that I wanted or if I'd have to go to an actual AT&T location. Um, and that's like not something I want to go through a call tree and talk to a person about, but it is something that a chatbot can service relatively easily. Right. Um, but, but that's actually quite different from what, from, you know, the, the person that, that cold calls or the person that is like on the, the floor of the store or, you know, these various, as you say, the sort of nervous system of a company. Right. Um, right. I mean, so, you really hear it as in like complaint calls, right? When people call for, with an issue, and I think that's, that's yeah. I, I'll, I'll 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 accept your six. I like I. I you I, don't I, get I to accept or deny. That's my number. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh! Someone's playing the older brother over there. Oh, right. I, 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 I validate. I reject your two then. <laughs> <laughs> well, from a, from a knowledge from efficient knowledge management, I certainly would not. It, on, on the parameters that you said, I have no. I take no issue with efficient knowledge management. Um, <laughs> but I, I do think that there's there's a larger agenda in trying to make that a uh, a fundamental part of most companies' kind of customer service interactions than than maybe just the uh helping people figure out you know whether you know kind of a location to get to but yeah that sounds good i think uh i think we solved it i'm i'm out of love but, uh, <laughs> i hope i have not crushed your burgeoning uh romance with uh with, yeah uh, you are you uh, man I, I can't believe i I don't remember this off the top of my head. This is this is what happens in the Galatea myth. Um, is that a, a eventually Polyphemus, the Cyclops, comes and uh, crushes uh, the guy who created the Galatea statue. But then she's like, "Jokes on you! I just turned him into a river, so he gets away." But yep, <laughs> I like to think of myself as Polyphemus. You're a bit Polyphemian. It has to be said. I, I, no greater compliment has ever been paid. All right. All well, right. Uh, I'll talk to you next week. Talk to you next week. All right. Love you, ma'am. Love you too. Bye.